The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze upon the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do for you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you're invited, you eat of his sacrifice. And you take of their daughters for your sons. And their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. All that opened the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of the cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with the lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No end shall covet your land. And when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in a year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened. Or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses... Write these words 
For in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Let's pray together. Lord, I am so thrilled that you have revealed these truths to us. That you would have us know you more. That you would have us see your glory. The glory that you have had from eternity past. The glory that you have always enjoyed in the Trinity, that you would call us to experience that glory, to know you. And Lord, I do pray, therefore, that you would give us understanding, that you would help me make these truths, these this multitude of truths that intersect here at this chapter more clear, and that the result would be a greater love of you, a greater passion for you, and therefore transformed lives that accurately reflect the truths that we know. So God, be with us now. We look for your presence to give us understanding. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I got my first real start in ministry uh, about 15 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, when I was a college student over in Eastern Washington, and while I was in the college ministry, um, it, it just so happened that there was also another a number of other young men that also had a had a passion for ministry. And actually, while I was at that church, uh, about twenty, if I count on my hands, it's probably about twenty young men have gone on to be missionaries or pastors throughout the world. Just a you know, out of a few congr- a few colleges that uh, are in that area. 20 people have gone on to be trained for ministry. Actually, Andy Tobin, who preached here a couple weeks ago, was one of those young men. And what's interesting is over half of these men, probably you know, 15 of the 20 or so, were trained for the ministry uh, by one man in particular, who was an elder of the church and oversaw the college ministry. And I don't think I've known any other man who has had such an impact um, for the kingdom of God, and not only how many people he trained up for the ministry, um, but also just how devoted he was uh, to the ministry in his life and his work. 
He had an incredible ministry and he was greatly loved by us. However, within uh, a few months after I was sent to seminary, I got a call from some of my friends who had told me that he had, it had been discovered that he had yielded to homosexual sin with some of uh, older teenagers in the church. And the consequence of that was he ruined his life, his ministry, and deeply hurt his family and all of us who had trusted him, who had been trained by him. What's even more remarkable about that is right after I had left, the church had, was having some difficulties, and I, re, I was kind of passing my ministry off that I oversaw to another young man, and I said, there's a lot of conflict right now in the church, uh, disagreements of what, you know, where, what direction the church is going to go. And I said, no matter what happens, this is the man that you want to listen to. He's got it right. And then just months later, this was exposed. Shocked. Us. In fact, his, uh, his daughter was one of Julie's best friends. And so we saw the consequences on a number of different levels. My point is, what do you tell a believer who has sinned in a similar manner as he has? How do you respond? Where do you begin? And how does God respond to the blatant rebellion of his people? What's God's heart towards such rebellion? And this is a vital question, not only for that elder, but I would argue for every person in this room, because each of us has sinned in a multitude of ways for which we need to be reconciled to God. It's arguably the most important thing a person needs to know. How can a sinner be how can a sinner be restored to God after their sin? And this passage reveals this truth. It's because of the greatness of our sin and God's hatred for it that the passage we're going to look at today is so important for us to understand because it does explain God's deep and his passionate desire to have sinners reconcile to himself, no matter how dark their sin is. In this passage, Exodus 34, I would say it's like a diamond for sinners. And just like a diamond is beautiful in its own right, yet when you put it on a black velvet setting, its radiance shines all the more clearly. And I would say that's also true of this passage when we see Exodus 32 through 34 in the setting where it lies, the glory shines all the more clearly. In Exodus 32, we saw that Israel had blatantly disobeyed the covenant. Just, just days after they had received this amazing covenant that they would be God's people, a kingdom of priests, they forsook God with the, the idolatry of the golden calf. Josh likened their actions to a bride who had just recently been married. And while the husband is off getting plans to build a, a home for them, in her impatience she runs off with another man. And the consequences for 
Israel's sin was devastating. 3,000 were killed by the Levites. Later on, a plague was sent in among the people, killing more. But the most devastating consequence was that their impatience cost them God. They lost God, the fount of all their satisfaction. Their impatience for God cost them God. They didn't just lose their spouse. They lost the only person who could give them everything that they needed. The only one who could fulfill all of their longings, all of their deepest desires. They cut themselves off from him. Remember in 33.5 what God said. He said, you Israel are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. And so because they've broken the covenant, they're no longer sanctified. And so if they're exposed to the glory of God at this point, they will die. They will be consumed by his glory. And so as far as Israel understands, there is no reason to believe they're ever going to have a second chance. That's why they're so devastated when God says, okay, I'll lead you into the promised land, but I'm not going in the midst of you. You've cut yourself off from me. And it's also why Moses has the tent of meeting outside the camp now. Where Israel has to stay in the camp and just look at the cloud descend as Moses goes in and talks to God. And also why Moses is unsatisfied with the arrangements. He knows that what makes Israel distinct and important is the fact that God is in the midst of them. It's not the blessings God gives. It's not the inheritance for Israel The real glory, the real need is to have God in their midst. And so Moses is unsatisfied and so he pleads with God, restore yourself to the people. And amazingly, in response to Moses' petition, God agrees. God agrees to the petition because because Moses' desire is right in line with God's heart. God, and we're going to see more of that today, God loves to restore sinners. And that's where we begin in chapter chapter 34, verse 1. God explains to Moses what he needs to do to have this covenant restored. He tells Moses to cut two new tablets in order to replace the ones that were broken. And also, he says, come up in the morning, which means there probably wasn't, you know, good chance there wasn't anybody else awake. There's no indication that he talked with anybody else. He cut the tablets, ascended the mountain. And God warns that no man is to come near me. This is reminiscent of what he said at Mount Sinai. But this time, Moses is the only one who gets to come. Previously, you had the 70 elders. You even had Aaron and his sons. They don't get that opportunity. They're cut off. Only Moses can approach the mountain because he is acting as the covenant mediator this time. So Moses goes up the mountain and we see this in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, or, or Yahweh, Yahweh, proclaiming his name, reminiscent of the beginning of Exodus. A God merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of fathers and the children and the children's children through the third and fourth generation. So again, remember that this is all done in response to Moses' petition for God to show him his glory. The glory of God, see, is not merely his radiance. In fact, the radiance is actually a reflection of the nature and character of God. The glory of God is tied to who God is. And so the glory of God is seen in knowing him. The more knowledge we have of God, the more of his glory we perceive. But understand, God does not merely desire that we should know him on just an intellectual level. The knowledge that God is revealing to Moses here is not just intellectual knowledge, though we could leave it that. But what he's doing, he's revealing himself. The glory of God that that God wants to reveal to us is, is an intimate knowledge. That we would know him. He wants Israel to know him. In fact, that's what he proclaimed. I'm going to bring you out of Egypt, not just simply so to, to release you from slavery, but that you might know me. And ultimately, we see, even see in uh, Exodus 15, at the Song of the Sea, that the nations would know me. God wants to reveal himself. Interestingly, too, we find in John 17, which is Jesus' prayer right before he goes to the cross, he says this, he says, In verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. And notice this tie between knowing God and the glory of God. Jesus says some more. And then in verse 22, he picks up this theme of the glory of God and knowing him. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, speaking of the church, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world would know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory you've given me because you love me from the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know you. They know that you've sent me. I have made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And I want to go to John 17 because it, it shows what's just kind of being touched on here in Exodus 34. God's revealing his, his glory to Moses. He's, he's showing more about his nature that the world has never known. But it's just, it's, in here in Exodus 34, it's just the tip of the iceberg. Jesus wants for us more than just intellectual knowledge of God. He wants us to have this intimate knowledge with God. The language to no one speaks of great intimacy. 
So God is revealing himself to Moses that Moses might know him even more. And likewise, Israel and us as well. And this proclamation could be summed up in really three phrases. The fact that he's merciful, that he's slow to anger, and that he's faithful. It says he's merciful. He uses two adjectives, mercy and grace. And taken together, they demonstrate that God is emotionally moved with pity towards sinners. And that he's inclined to show them favor despite their rejection of him. Even though Israel rejected God for a golden calf, God is moved with pity. He pities them. He pities their stupidity, if I could use that word. And he's inclined to show them favor despite the rejection. And not only that, he's slow to anger. What the phrase demonstrates there is that he's not, he doesn't discipline his children out of anger or out of frustration like we might. But he always moves in their best interests. His actions toward them are always cool and patient and deliberate. He's not short-fused. And he's faithful in love. The word there, one we're familiar with, steadfast love. The word is hasid. We get the term Hasidic Jews. It, it describes covenant loyalty. It's love that's characterized by faithfulness to a promise, not just circumstances. I love this person not because what they offer me, not because of uh, who they are in their beauty, but I love them because I choose to love them, because I've promised myself to them. It's love based upon a covenant. And he says, furthermore, he forgives all kinds of sin. He uses three words that really are, are the totality of the words used for sin in the scriptures. It covers all kinds of sin. Iniquity. What iniquity means is it's perversion. It means to take something good and twist it. Distorting it from its original purpose. Twisting something good into ugly In other words, God forgives the prostitute, the child molester, the cannibal, the rapist. If the person seeks God, God will forgive this sin. No matter how distorted it is. Transgression, it speaks to blatant rebellion. Not just wandering off the path of righteousness, but knowing what the rule is and doing the exact opposite. Like the golden calf. And just sin. The general word for sin. Means just missing what God has called you to do. God says I forgive all of that. From the least of the sins to the greatest of sins. Any kind of sin God is willing to forgive. If the sinner comes to him. Truly desiring forgiveness. And demonstrates that by faith in Christ. And yet, although God delights in showing mercy, and then he forgives all kinds of sin, he is also just in punishment. Notice the end of verse 7. He says, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In other words, sin is always going to have its consequences. The fact that God forgives does not erase the truth that sin will have reverberating effects in this life. 
And sometimes those consequences are going to have effects to successive generations. And we'll talk a little bit more about the consequences of sin a little bit later on. And notice after all this proclamation what Moses does. God has just revealed himself to Moses. In verse 8, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he says, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go up in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Again, not just give us the inheritance, but take us for your inheritance. In other words, Moses is saying, this is going to be true. Just one last time he says, please do it then, God. Please do what I've asked. And God confirms that he will. Verse 10. Behold, I am making a covenant. God says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And then in verses 10 through 27, it really, it reflects the covenant's restoration. The covenant's restoration. It describes the the things that need to take place in order for this covenant to be restored. Whenever sin breaks up a relationship, really three things need to happen in order for a relationship to be restored. There needs to be confession. There needs to be a commitment to cease from that sin. But also an acceptance of the consequences. The confession of the sin has already been demonstrated Israel has mourned their sin. Moses has confessed the sin on behalf of Israel. So we've seen confession already demonstrated. And this section primarily deals with the commitment not to continue in sin. If, that, if you want this covenant to be restored, Israel, you need to stop doing what you've been doing. Commit to repent. And again, we'll, we'll talk about the consequences embracing consequences a little bit later on. But this section deals primarily with the commitment to stop sinning. So, God was acknowledging here that He would restore the covenant, but Israel needs to be faithful for the covenant to continue. See, there's this common misunderstanding amongst believers that when they ask for forgiveness, forgiveness means forgiving and then forgetting. As is if, we're just supposed to let love cover the sin and that the consequences are just going to be erased. And although there's an element of truth to that, when we forgive somebody, we are committing, I'm not going to treat you as if you'd sinned that way. I'm going to try to look over it. At the same time, it's not as if you're pretending that what happened didn't actually happen. It's a commitment to treat a person a certain way, but it's not pretending that there's no longer any consequences. So in order for reconciliation to take place, there needs to be a sincere acknowledgement of wrong and commitment not to repeat the wrong. wrong. Again, this is not a promise to never sin again. What this commitment is, it's it's a commitment to try to do whatever you can not to commit the sin again, right? That's true repentance. If you recognize that what you did was so evil, that's the last thing you want to do. Especially if you've seen that sin, how that sin affected God and how it affected other people. Again, not that you wouldn't ever sin, but you want, you want to do everything you can to not commit that sin again. 
And this is really what God is calling Israel to do here. Verses 12 through 28 summarize what Israel to do. 10 and 11 summarize what God is going to do. He's going to accomplish his promises to them. But Israel needs to be committed to the covenant. Particularly what it focuses on is their fidelity to God. Their spiritual fidelity because of the sin that was committed. They, to use the language of scripture, hoard after another idol. And so there's this reminder, don't go after other gods. In fact, when you go into the land, destroy any sort of temptation that might lead you down that same path. Even the reminders to maintain the feasts and the Sabbath, verses 17 to 25, is what they will do to be able to maintain that commitment. So this is all about spiritual fidelity. So in other words, God is reminding that Israel, in the recommitting their vows in this covenant, God is reminding Israel, know what you're committing to. Like a husband might say, remember, till death do us part. You're going to be faithful to me. You need to be faithful. If this is going to work, you have to be faithful to me. And this, of course, brings us to the third C of restoration. You had confession. We just talked about the recommitment. But there needs to be an embrace of the consequences, an acknowledgement that there's going to be consequences for the sin. See, the covenant is renewed with Israel, but things are not really back to normal. They're not going to get to experience the glory that God had originally designed for them. See, God's original aim was for them to experience the glorious presence of the Lord, which was indicated by when the elders came to Mount Sinai, the, the elders represented all of Israel, and they saw the glory of God in the inauguration of the covenant. But things are different now. Moses is the only one who directly speaks to God. Later on, God will reveal himself to kings or to prophets or maybe to some priests. But not in the same way. The aim to make Israel a kingdom of priests will have to wait until their hearts are changed. Their hard hearts, their stiff necks is preventing them from seeing the glory of God. There are lasting consequences to sin. So you recognize sin will always, always, always result in pain and destruction. There's no way around that. So even even when sin is forgiven, forgiveness might limit the consequences of that sin, but it doesn't just erase those consequences. For instance... Our Lord Jesus Christ bore our sins on the tree, but he will always be in heaven with those marks. Forever. The fact that Christ, the Holy One, died doesn't just erase that. In fact, it's a reminder there is a consequence. Even our own death. We might be forgiven children of God, but we will all die as a consequence to sin. Sin doesn't erase the consequences. We need to accept that. So the fact that Moses has to veil Israel from God's glory in the next section, next section is because it's a consequence of their sin. But before we get there, I want to note 
the miracle that's mentioned here in verse 28. Because it ties into this greater picture. Notice it says, He was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights, and he neither ate bread nor drank water. And it might seem like just an, an interesting note, which I think it is, but I think it's getting at something even deeper. The heart, I would say, of even this passage. Clearly it's miraculous. But the deeper point is to observe that in being in the Lord's presence, his natural needs were no longer present. Because they were getting satisfied by a greater satisfaction. Is it possible that all of our hungerings, that all of our thirstings, are just shadows of a greater hungering, a greater thirsting, for a greater glory. Ultimately reflections of our need for God. And again, that's not to say that we don't have real cravings for food, for comfort, for security, for sustenance. It's not to say that those aren't real, but they're just shadows in comparison to our greater need. See, our greater need for God is just as real as these other physical needs that we might feel with our body. See, Jesus was sustained in the wilderness. Right before, in, John, in Matthew chapter 3, it describes Jesus getting t- uh, tempted by the devil right after not having any food for 40 days. And Jesus responds to the devil temptation, devil's temptation by quoting a scripture from Exodus. Satan says, turn this stone into bread and jesus says man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of god again reminding him of the point of the manna god will provide god is more satisfactory than even my greatest cravings that was the point that israel was supposed to learn and jesus responds to temptation by reminding satan of that truth also john 4 reflects this truth when Uh, the disciples go and get some food for Jesus and Jesus sits down by a well and they ask Jesus about this food and Jesus says, "I, I have food here of which you do not know. And that food is to do the will of my Father. Jesus is going to be sustained by doing what God wants him to do. And that's what Moses is doing. Moses is doing what God commanded him to do right here on the mountain. He's working. He's not just having some existential experience. He's working and in working he's getting sustained. Because he's doing it in light of the glory of God. And this also reflects the reason for why we fast. Our bodily cravings are merely a shadow of a deeper craving. Again, not that they're less real, but that they're just less substantial. You can eat and you will hunger again. But when you're in the presence of God, you're satisfied. A shadow is real, but is nonetheless a shadow. And if we just understood this truth, it would help us in fighting our temptations to all other forms of idolatry. See, when you recognize that the natural craving for food, for sex for freedom, for sleep, for glory, 
when you recognize that those are ultimately thirsts for a greater satisfaction, you can more easily turn your attention away from the shadow and back to the true source for which your body craves. For the real thing. See, the gratification of choosing God over indulging the flesh flesh might be less immediate, but it will be more satisfying and it will be more joyful in the long run. And we've all tasted that. I think a helpful illustration here, many of you like to go running. And when you run or you exercise, you get thirsty. And you might find it tempting that in the midst of your workout and your dehydration, that somebody comes up to you and offers you an ice-cold Coca-Cola. It's ice-cold, it's liquid, it tastes yummy. And if you're really thirsty, you're going to want that Coca-Cola. But also anybody that's ever worked out would recognize if I, especially if you're in the midst of a workout, you recognize if I drink that, it's just going to make me feel sick afterwards and gross. I would rather wait and have Gatorade a little bit later. So I think it's likewise when we face temptation, it's, it's recognizing that that temptation isn't going to give you what it's promising. Maybe immediately it might, but it's just going to make you feel gross and ucky in the end. So the appeal that I make to myself when faced with temptation is, can you hold out knowing that something better is coming? Something better is coming, and that indulging the flesh with the temptation will only lead to greater grief. We can convince ourselves that the reality of what the temptation is, it's just this cheap, it's just often deadly substitute for what will ultimately satisfy. And so this little anecdote about the miracle of going with food and going without food and water points to the bigger and deeper issue being articulated in this chapter. And that's that Israel should should recognize They've been designed to be satisfied by the glory of God, not by these lesser idols. So Israel lost access to their fount of all life when their impatience led them into spiritual adultery. They had a need, but instead of trusting God, they were led astray. They abandoned God for some cheap replacement. Again, Moses has this obvious need for food, but he's satisfied because he's with the one that satisfies all cravings. And so again, there's this element of rebuke to Israel when they see Moses. It's like God is trying to show them, Moses was sustained because he was with me. And you could have been too, if you just would have held out. If you just would have trusted my word, you too could have What Moses has. But because you're stiff-necked, because you're a hard-hearted people, you've lost it. And some of you might be thinking, but wait a second, isn't God restoring the covenant here? Aren't they getting it? Yes, God is restoring the covenant, but again, because of Israel's hardness of heart... The access to the glory is just going to be limited to that extent. 
See, even Moses doesn't get full access to the glory of God, right? God passes by him. He has to hold him in the cleft of the rock. Moses can't see his face. Likewise, man has different accesses to the glory of God. But they've cut themselves off from one degree of glory. And this is the consequence for sin that Israel must expect. Their opportunity for intimacy with God has been lost or at least limited for now. And that brings us to the next section, the veiled glory of restoration. See, it's important to recognize that the people still don't know that this covenant is going to be restored when Moses goes down the mountain. Their expectation is glory of God means death for me. And so when Moses descends down the mountain and they see this shining face of Moses, they're expecting the worst. That's why they fear him. And Moses doesn't understand why they're afraid that it was because his face was radiating the glory of God. They expected that they were going to be consumed. But Moses then beckons them to come near. And he reveals to them the good news that God was going to renew the covenant. He wasn't going to consume them. And he would continue in, the, in their midst. Which brings the question up again. So why the veil, Moses? If the covenant is being restored, why the veil? Again, it, it, it points back to they would be consumed by the glory of God. They still had hard hearts. So to keep them from being consumed, Moses veils himself. So they're not consumed by the glory. Condemned is one of the words Paul uses. Moses had a ministry of condemnation, unlike the ministry of the new covenant, which we'll look at. So the glory of God here is a ministry of death. Another word Paul used. Without this veil, Israel over time would have been destroyed. See, one, for instance, one can look at the glory of the sun. We've all seen the sun. But if we were to stare at the sun, our eyes would be destroyed. Unless we have some sort of veil covering us, protecting us from that glory. See, when confronted by the glory of God, sinners have always had to veil themselves. I think in our culture, we tend to have an overly optimistic view of the glory of God in light of our condition. What do I mean by that? Remember Adam and Eve. After Adam and Eve sinned, God came again walking in the, uh, in the midst of the garden. And what did Adam and Eve do? They hid themselves. Why? Because they were naked. They were going to be exposed before the glory of God. They wanted to veil themselves. They were covering themselves from God. Also Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, he has this amazing experience of the glory of God in the temple that he describes. And Isaiah's words to God is he says... Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. He's not just shining, he's not just like experiencing the glory of God, hands raised. Yes, this is great, it feels so good. He's ashamed. 
It's ashamed. Job also. Job. There was no one like Job. That's a, he is such an amazing guy. But Job, righteous Job, when God speaks to him, Job responds by saying, I had heard of you, but now I see and I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. See, this is why it's important to emphasize that God's glory is not something that sinners are attracted to. Without some sort of veil, it's condemning, it's threatening. Even in Hebrews chapter 4, when describing the word of God, it says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There's There's shame. But the veil also demonstrates that because Moses believed and because he was faithful, he could have access into God's glory. He could speak with God face to face. He could enjoy his presence. This is what the Israelites could have had. But their hard-heartedness and their stiff-necked nature kept them from it. What's so sad is this is what Israel really needs. They don't just need freedom from slavery. They need God. And it's really what all that we need, all that we long for, all of our cravings, all of our desires are met in God. That's what we were created for. We were created to be satisfied by God. And so Exodus 34 has this bittersweet ending. The good news is, God is going to continue in their midst. He's going to forgive them and renew the covenant. And he's going to do so on the basis of his sovereign freedom to show mercy to whomever he chooses. It's, It's amazing. God's not going to consume them. That's amazing. That's good news. That's amazing news. I can't emphasize that enough. And yet it's heartbreaking because what they really need They've cut themselves off from. But it points to something good. Exodus 34 suggests that Israel needs a better covenant than this one. Not simply one that's going to allow God to tolerate them, but one that's actually going to deal with their true need of restoration. A covenant that will deal with their hard heart that will wash them completely free from sin so that they can finally endure the glory of God. And this is exactly what God promises He's going to do for them. Please turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. And I'm going to read this from verse 25. If you... You don't have the time. Just enjoy what God promises for Israel. Because the old covenant didn't work. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. 
and a new spirit I will put in with you. I will, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk according to my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And the same imagery and words that Jeremiah uses according to this new covenant announcement by God, also reflect what's going on here in Exodus. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, We remember this. This is fresh. Look at this imagery. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall anyone teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they'll all know me as their husband. From the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their transgressions no more. There is glory in the new covenant. God is giving them all that they could have ever wanted. It shows how... How the old covenant, as glorious as it was, it just pales because it doesn't give them what they need. And, and they couldn't do anything about it. They were hard-hearted. God had to give them a new heart. And God has to give us a new heart. Because if it's not for God's sovereign working in our hearts, we would reject Him too and cut ourselves off from the only thing that will ever satisfy us. So God has grafted us Gentile nations into this amazing promise. And given us not only access to God, but access to the opportunity to proclaim this glorious truth among all the world. And this brings us to Paul's point in 2 Corinthians. The greater glory of the new covenant restoration. The new covenant, as we've seen, solves the problem of Israel's hard heart that need to be dealt with. He's going to give them a new heart. And not only that, it's permanent. It's not like the old covenant that can still cut themselves off for disobedience. It's a new heart. It's permanent. It's lasting. Because it's going to deal with their hard-heartedness. And God says, I'm going to remember their sins no more. It points back to Romans 8, 1. Christian, there is therefore now no condemnation for those of you who are in Jesus Christ our Lord. No condemnation. It's dealt with. It's permanent. It's unchanging because it's established in Christ and what Christ did on the cross. And now nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. It it solves a hard heart. It's permanent. It's also a ministry of life versus a ministry of death, which is what Paul talks about here in 2 Corinthians 3. Paul Paul says, what, what I preach, I'm not like Moses who comes down from the mountain and people are afraid of what I'm saying. 
Paul says, when I come, I'm, I'm offering people life. I'm not condemning them. They're condemned already. I'm telling them they can be saved. They can be satisfied. I'm not hindering anything. That's why he says, with great boldness I preach. Because there's all the, I can just tell them it's all there. It's in Christ. It's a ministry of life because of the forgiveness that Christ gives us by dying for our sins. The other reason it's a greater glory is because of the impact it has on Christians. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. I'm going to read this. I'm not going to do much explanation because it's just... I think when understand in the context we've been talking about, it just makes it clear. 2 Corinthians 3.12 Since we have such a hope, we're very bold. We're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, even when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because it's only taken away in Christ. It's only taken away when a person embraces the new covenant and has their heart changed. So yes, this day, this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, all Christians, all those in the new covenant forgiven by Christ, who have faith in Christ, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Now this comes from the Lord, who's the Spirit. But it brings up this question. What? <laughs> How do Christians see the glory of God? I mean, really, Paul? Moses comes down the mountain, he's radiating light. How can Paul say this? Well, he explains. We don't have a whole lot of time to get into it, but I'll simply say that it's this. It's, we're not like Moses that, in that we radiate light, but the glory of God in the changed life of a believer is no less obvious. It's no less obvious and it's no less substantial. But it's different. If I could describe it this way, our hearts have been changed. We've been given a new heart, but we still have corrupted flesh. So the glory of God that we see is the way that that transformed heart affects our life. In a sense, our, you can think of it as our body is a veil to the glory of God. But when we get to heaven, when we get our restored body, we will shine like the sun. But our corrupted flesh remains. But the glory is no less substantial. And it's no less obvious. So what is the glory? If it's not light... What is it? I think I'd summarize it in two ways. It's, it's the fact that what we preach is the cross. Because in the cross, we see the character of God as it was proclaimed here in Exodus 34, that God loves sinners. God loves sinners so much that he sent his only son to die for you even when you were his enemy. When you were wretched and you had nothing. God killed his son. To pay for your penalty. There, that is the glory of God. 
There is no greater revelation of God than how much he loves sinners in that way. That's what we proclaim. We, we can look at the cross and it, for all eternity, it stands as a memoriam. God loves sinners. And God loves his justice. And God loves his glory. And God will accomplish his promise at whatever the cost. There is no greater indication of who our God is than the cross. And that's what we preach. And it's clear. It's precise. We can point people to the cross and they see it. If they're willing to see it. So we see the glory of God in the cross, but we also see the glory of God in our changed lives. This is, this is something that I think we're so used to, we don't even recognize how glorious the changed lives of believers are. We see the glory of God in one another. But the unbelieving world only sees this veiled glory in us, just glimpses. We are, the God transforms us to no longer live after the stuff of this world. We are so transformed by the glory of God. It's why we weep at testimonies when we hear how somebody once was a rancid unbeliever. Now they do everything they can for the glory of God. And we love them. We truly love them, even though we don't even know them. And we weep at that truth. It's why we sing with loud voices at songs that musically maybe aren't all that great. But it's the truth that we love. We love the truth and it makes us weep at the truth. It's why we grieve over lives of people we have never met. It's why people would give up their six-figure incomes to become missionaries to people they've never met who have nothing to offer them. That's crazy. But it's, it's true. It's substantial. It's not really crazy. It's wise, but it seems crazy. It's seen in the fact that we love our enemies. We really love our enemies. We really bless those who persecute us. We don't preach ourselves, but God who raises the dead. In other words, we don't seek honor for ourselves anymore. We just want people to see and know God. That's glorious. This is Paul's point chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. Read this in this new light. Paul says, but we have this treasure, this new covenant, this gospel in jars of clay. To show, this is why it's in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. So we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our body. Look at the life of the believer as he says it in verse 11. We who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that, this is crazy, so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our mortal bodies. We let ourselves get ripped to pieces because we want unbelievers to see the glory of God. And they see it all the more clearly when our broken clay bodies are broken. When we're beat up, God shines all the more clearly because it proves that it's real. And that's glorious. What we believe is the real thing. And it really satisfies. 
So if you've tasted the glory of the Lord, live like it. And let the unbelieving world wonder what they are missing out on. Why would people live like that? Why would people care so much? They would go, what what don't we know about this Jesus? Live in such a way that shows knowing God and seeing His glory as is demonstrated in the love of Christ and in the fellowship of the church that it's more satisfying than all that these temporary shadows can offer. Live in such a way that radiates the glory of being restored to your all-satisfying Creator. Let's pray. Lord, it's so hard to articulate the, the weight of glory And I, it's, 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 it's this jar of clay. It's this flesh that keeps us from fully experiencing it. God, continue to open our eyes to see Your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Help us to see Your glory in the transformed lives of believers that we would be even more transformed We've been even more desirous to live a life that truly reflects that we have nothing to fear. That we are really, really satisfied. Because we know what it means to be in Christ. Because we know what the new covenant gives us. Help us to grasp these truths. And help us to be faithful livers out of these truths, faithful proclaimers of these truths, that those veiled unbelievers might thirst for what they're missing out on. And they might have their thirsts assuaged. Glorify yourself with the glory that you deserve that the whole earth will be full of your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.